Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week on 321 Go, we're talking about what goes into a state funeral. There's a lot you may not know. And we're also talking about women in politics and everywhere and the judgment that comes with what they wear. And last but not least, Rudy Giuliani's tweet was hijacked and he isn't happy about it. Then we talked to Andrea Silbert from the EOS Foundation about the women's power gap in Massachusetts. And in Two Minutes with Tom this week, Tom is talking about and taking a moment to honor the legacy of President George H.W. Bush. First up, three, two, one, go. Let's talk about something important. one go on OA on air our weekly look into the world of public affairs culture business and the economy I'm your host Cosmo Macero in this installment of 321 go America's double standard on judging female political leaders by their clothes comes into the spotlight thanks to some poorly chosen words by a Washington journalist critiquing the outfit of New York representative-elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez how do we level the playing field for congressional couture we'll discuss and former President George H.W. Bush was laid to rest this week following a state funeral that was representative of the impact he had as a leader. Our own Hugh Drummond joins us to talk about the protocols and practices of staging a presidential funeral, including the responsibility of a president for helping design his own services and interment. Finally, Rudy Giuliani, the former New York mayor, U.S. attorney, and now legal counsel to President Trump, gives America a lesson in not jumping to completely wrong conclusions. He got pranked and punked because of a Twitter typo, and it was all downhill from there. We'll explain. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on air. Kyan, how are you? No complaints today. All right, we're, we're, we're marching toward the, uh, the Christmas holiday. Yes. We're getting close. And the break. No complaints today, as opposed no to compla- all days. <laughs> you never know. All right, let's get to it. All right, Kyan, first on the table, the double standard in Washington, in politics, and I guess elsewhere, between men and women when it comes to dress and how they dress. Specifically, a firestorm created by a reporter, a guy named Eddie Scarry from the Washington Examiner, a couple weeks ago tweeted that newly elected Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York, uh, who has... Uh, expressed the reality of her situation. She's someone coming into Washington that is not someone of great resources and is concerned about the cost of living. He says, he, 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 he know, I think it was a red outfit that she had been wearing on a particular day, and he says, that jacket and coat don't look like a girl who struggles. Well, number one, red, red alert, alarm bells, girl. That's a congressman woman you're talking about, buddy. Um to show some respect, elected no, no less by the state uh, voters of the state of New York. Uh, number two, squarely talking about her appearance and uh, and judging her and her words based on her appearance. All kinds of good stuff in there. And boy, that guy took it on the chin. And boy, he deleted that tweet. And I bet he won't do that again. What do you think? Not just limited to D.C., Congress, New York, Congresswomen-elect or politicians, um, I think that the the standard of men versus women is in dress and how we talk about it. Nothing new, particularly 
and looking at, you know, Hillary Clinton and her elections, it was, you know, the pantsuit, the pantsuit. It became like a joke. Um, but it's particularly interesting because what we're talking about is this being the year of the woman, right? Like women are are having a a moment, quote unquote, or a movement, as people would prefer to say, that we are still in 2018 talking about the way women dress in a different way than we would talk about a man. And that the idea that uh, anyone would ever tweet this about a gentleman and how, you know, he was dressed and Oh, he doesn't look like a guy who's struggling. It just wouldn't happen. Yeah, no, I, I, you're, you're right. No, I the double standard is not new. Yeah, it's not new. I don't think you're right. You're right. Uh, just his comments, the tweet itself was really, really poor, uh, you know, just just a, a bad decision. Uh, again, he, he calls a, con- a congresswoman elective girl and all these other things. However, slight curveball here. If, and you're right, you know, society, America, sort of pop culture, America does not does not really pass judgment on uh, on the way men dress. I think, number one, it's kind of a standard uniform with not a lot of real variables, right? You guys can wear some, a, a, a fun tie, a fun tire, maybe a fun you know. pair of socks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's wear, not too many you know, ways to branch out. You wear a blue shirt. It's like, what's that? However... If on the one hand, say at the Oscars or the Emmys or the Grammys, we are celebrating and 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 exploring, celebrating the the gowns that that uh, uh, these celebrities and superstars are wearing, and that's a huge part of the evening, and that's certainly a form of judgment, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's Mr. Black sort of do's and don'ts of dress at the Oscars and all that stuff. Well, how is this a lot different? I, and I don't mean this that tweet. I mean this. Why couldn't we? You know, and, and the first lady is in that same category. Oh, gosh, right? yeah. The most celebrated woman in America during any given administration. What she wears sets trends. That's all. I see that as all positive. So isn't that part of the double standard? So in the red carpet situation, um, they ask men as well. They do ask men who they're wearing. They do, but who cares? Just for the label, because they got to give the plug. A, a black tux is a black tux is a black tux yeah. after a while. Yeah. Um, I think that the... The problem is that there are different categories, right? And and maybe that's maybe it's not fair. But when you're out and you're going to a party and you want to talk about your dress, that's one thing. When you're at a business meeting, that's that's it's not the time of the place. If you're walking to a business meeting, if you're walking the halls of Congress, not really like what you want to be putting out there. I think that when you get dressed in the morning, your clothes say something about you. Yes. We all know that. I I can say personally as a woman that I think I have I probably spend more time, particularly when I was younger and like earlier in my career, thinking about what I put on in the morning and how that would be perceived and if it was appropriate and what would that mean than I'm guessing yeah. some of my male colleagues. So let me ask you this. And again, not, that tweet was wrong, sexist, inappropriate, uh, insulting, Can't childish, it. stupid. However, overall... Is the idea that the way uh, that, that celebrating uh, the way women dress, whether it, it, as celebrities, as the first lady, as someone in a prominent position, remember? I, I think you know. At one point, Michelle Obama wore like what, what flat shoes or something, or what she wore. She, she also dared to wear J. Crew. She, wore J. Exactly. she was one of us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One year, Sharon Stone wore a J. Crew T-shirt to the Oscars, and white button up. Yeah. The next day, they'd sold a million, a million of them, right? Mm-hmm. Anyways, but you're talking about celebrating clothing. Yeah, but it, but hold on, it, it's it's a very fine line. Is it sexist to do that? 
is it sexist to do even that? Just to say, oh, we're, we're celebrating the way the way these women look at the Oscars and these ones over here who made bad decisions. We're, we're harshly <laughs> well, judging them, and that's the worst, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, don't know. I mean, it's it's. I think I think there's a little bit of a fine line. I think in there this case, is, that line was crossed, and the guy really made a mistake in terms of. It's you, also yeah. who you're talking about. We're talking about a, a you know a person who's going to be making decisions about our, about our country and the direction we're taking, and to sort of trivialize it into a tweet about her coat and jacket and what she's wearing is just unacceptable. Um, I, think and I think you nailed it right there. And I it mean, happens too often, unfortunately. Yeah, you nailed it right there. Uh, and it's not the first time, and it won't be the last, no. that this particular, you know, she, I mean, and, and, and then, you know, she got asked if she, she, got, she got treated like an intern when she first showed up in, uh, in Washington. You know what? We, we have learned that a lot of freshman, con- uh, freshman congressmen and women yeah. get treated like that because people don't know who they are, right? Understood. But it won't be the last time that she encounters and others and other of this new Congress encounter that kind of indignity. Um, This one, though, very, very very, uh, um, sort of upfront uh, around her outfit in that particular. Yeah, it's not just junior leaders. It's everybody. It is. All right. Thanks, Cayenne. Okay, former President George Herbert Walker Bush, that's Bush 41, was laid to rest this week. Following a funeral service at Washington National Cathedral, five living presidents, all five living presidents, as well as dignitaries from around the country attended. President Trump, no speaking role at the funeral, also in attendance. There is tremendous planning, preparation, detail that goes into a state funeral, not just in the immediate time uh, proceeding, but but actually years in advance. In fact, actually at the beginning of a president's administration, the the considerations for a state funeral, as as uh, as dark and macabre as that may sound, actually are 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 put in motion out of necessity and protocol. Here to talk about that. Uh, is our colleague Hugh Drummond, our senior vice president here at O'Neill Associates for marketing? Hugh, good to see you. Good to see you, Cosmo. So uh, it's it's been quite a week. A lot of emotion too. Some poignant moments. Um, I, I think one of the most iconic photos I've ever seen involving any any dog, any animal, is is, is the former president's. Uh, the late president's service dog guarding his casket. As Such it, an amazing picture. It really was, Cayenne, as, as it lay in state. Uh, tremendous expressions of, uh, of, of, of feeling and thought about, about this former president um, and a lot of other things we can get into. But let's, let's talk about the actual preparations because the level of detail is, is really remarkable. And I think the, the average person may not think about that. It's really interesting. I mean, the like you said, the the moment of planning begins very early in a president's term. They're they're told to sit down and and imagine what they would like their funeral arrangements to be like. And you know, you can imagine your first month in office, and and that's something that uh, you get taken aside and, and asked to, to to think about. And um, there are personal elements that are captured in those uh, in that first conversation. So. You know, back then it probably wasn't about a service dog, but later, as as the years went on, I'm sure that became part of the equation uh, for this um, very, very honorable, very special 
uh, ceremony. Um, I will say a couple things. Um, the there are there are a lot of prescribed facts with the presidential funeral, a state funeral, and it's everything from the the order of who, uh, what car, what what military branch, what 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 uh, part of government goes first, um, you know, the lineup uh, to the kind of uh, salutes that take place. For example, one, the, the, yeah, speed go ahead. Of the, the speed of the speed motorcade, of the motorcade, twenty miles an hour on the dot. That's right. And in, in the case of President uh, George H.W. Bush, there was no horse-drawn caisson, but typically the presidential funeral requires a horse-drawn caisson. And what's interesting about that is that the caisson is actually the transfer of the casket from a hearse to a caisson takes place on uh, at the intersection of Constitution Avenue and 16th Street, which is the intersection where the White House is first visible along the route. So it's a, it's a ceremonial transfer at that moment. In this case, it, it was uh, all done by hearse. Wow. Um, these, and a, a number of these um, conventions or, or, or guidelines go back to like the mid-19th century, the mid-1800s, Cayenne. I mean, your, your thoughts on this? Do you have a memory of any particular presidential or state funeral? I mean, I, I think uh, uh, I certainly have a just as a a, a adolescent, uh, you know, um, remembering, um, uh, you know, uh, cer certain things. I mean, do you have a particular memory about this or, or thoughts on that? Oh, Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> yeah, right. Top of mind. Um, I just. I love, we were having this conversation yesterday actually with you, I love the amount of detail that goes into something like this. I think it's so important for, it shows such respect for what someone has done in servicing our country, uh, whether it's a, a president or you had Senator McCain recently. Um, it's, I think it's to sound kind of silly, but I think it's a really beautiful thing the way that the everything kind of stops. And there are certain things that are done for such small but very important reasons like even the transfer so when you first see the white house and the amount of thought that goes into this and that it's built upon sort of year and decade and experience after experience of how is the best way to honor somebody who made the de the decision to serve our country in whatever manner they chose i think the images of of a, of a you know of a presidential funeral that every, that sort of everyone is familiar with even though i, I think no one in this room actually was was alive, but um, you know, the, uh, President Kennedy's funeral was modeled after Abraham Lincoln's funeral uh, by design of the family and and, and Jackie Kennedy at the time, um, and and that's something that everyone just kind of immediately associates with, right, and, and, and immediately recognizes, and, and I wonder um, that the, the, the things, the images of this particular uh, funeral, and, and really the, uh, him laying in state with the service, to all those things, uh, I wonder if, if those will be sort of iconic in a way. It feels like they might, you know. The only, the, the thing that stands out for me is, I, I remember, uh, this is sort of, this would have been the early 90s, Richard Nixon passed away, and it wasn't so much the services, but for a president who had a legacy of at least, you know, questionable, uh, a questionable legacy for obvious reasons, uh, the Watergate scandal and his, and his forced resignation, there seems to always be, be and, there, and there certainly was then, 
uh, you know, uh, a, a desire to, to identify the positive elements of his presidency and his character, and that was done. That's also always part of it, and I, and I think that uh, for those who would, who, would, who would bring up sort of the negative elements of, 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 a, of a George H.W. Bush presidency, the overriding kind of theme uh, are the things that you remember fondly, right? So the other interesting thing here is that presidential funerals always uh, feature a uh, Air Force or airplane flyover. In this case, it's going to be a Navy. George Bush was a Navy man, so the uh, Navy has scheduled what is a uh, 21-plane flyover in Texas as part of the final services for uh, President Bush's internment, 21 planes in the famous missing man formation, and that's where a plane uh, exits the formation as it flies over. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's an incredibly significant thing, historic. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, um, 41st President of the United States, laid to rest this week, uh, a, moment in his, a moment in history. Hugh, thanks so much for joining us here on 321 Go. Thank you for having me. Okay, and finally, uh, Rudy Giuliani, legal advisor to President Trump, stepped in it this past week um, with regard to a tweet, he, otherwise innocuous tweet, I think on November 30th, about referring to the G20 summit. He, um, in, in, in posting the tweet, he doesn't leave a space between the period and the capital letter I, therefore it creates a hyperlink, which he doesn't understand. Um, some uh, wiseacre notices this and says, hey, that hyperlink to a website, I'm going to buy that website. And he buys a website on the spot for $5. He posts a very simple message that says something along the lines of President Trump is a traitor or such and such. Uh, and boom, and uh, within 15 minutes, Rudy Giuliani has been pranked and punked nationally. Uh, very funny stuff. Easily resolved with proper guidance, proper PR guidance, easily resolved. Haha, what a mistake I made. Uh, that guy got me. Move along and delete the tweet or, 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 or whatever, because you can't really edit a tweet like a Facebook post. Instead, he, he, he completely turns it around and says Twitter, Twitter is, is, is hacking his account and says all these things that absolutely are not only not true, but not even possible. And by the way, as you've pointed out, he is the what? He's like the national head of cybersecurity. Yeah. And he doesn't understand how hyperlinks or Twitter or generally, I guess, the, the web works. Um, you know, he dug in when he should have just sort of taken the mea culpa and moved on it's, from it. And it's, and it's barely even a mea culpa. It's, it's, yeah. it, I mean, he, he didn't even do anything wrong except no. get fat fingers like everybody else does. Big deal. Well, typo on a tweet. Someone took advantage of it. Funny prank. That's all it is. It's a prank. But then it becomes a, a national story yes. that he's, uh, the Twitter is, is after me. It, it, it's the anti-Trump, uh, you know, Twitter. It's crazy. Simple. These people do not get basic guidance on how to manage. I don't even want to call it a crisis. How to manage a simple, a, a simple flub. Mistweet. Yeah. Nothing. A simple mistweet. And it's one of those things that so much can come from a tweet or nothing can come from yeah. a tweet. And it's sort of, oh, I, I just, 
he could have taken this so differently. And he could have avoided making himself look so ridiculous, so incompetent, um, and, and just uninformed. It's very and disappointing. And instead, he's become this more of a mockery. Yeah, very disappointing. America's mayor, a great source of inspiration, not just in New York, but the whole country during in the aftermath of 9-11. By the way, before that, just as U.S. Attorney of New York, crushed the New York mafia, right? A real hero, and he's just kind of, he's just kind of fading away into this, into this Rudy caricature, and this is the latest manifestation of that. All right, Cayenne, great as always. Thank you. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of 321 Go. 321 Go is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. That's all for 321 Go. Up next, I'm joined by my colleague Andy Pavin for an interview with Andrea Silbert on the women's power gap in colleges and universities in Massachusetts. Hello, and I'm here joined by Andrea Silbert, president of the EOS Foundation, who is responsible for a recent report on the women's power gap in Massachusetts, looking at women in leadership at colleges and universities throughout the state. And this is first in what will be a series of reports looking at women's power gap in a variety of sectors. So welcome, Andrea. Thank you for having me. So before we turn to the women's power gap research, can you tell us a little bit about the EOS Foundation, what it does, your mission? Sure. The EOS Foundation is a family foundation. I'm the first non-family member to run it. And we focus on making Massachusetts better in a number of areas. We look at anti-hunger work. Um, we focus on education, anti-poverty work, and have recently added women's leadership to our mix. So with that in mind, can you now tell us what is the women's power gap? Well, we came up with this idea uh, for the women's power gap so that we could look across sectors and see how far behind women are than men. So the way we define it is you take the percentage of men in a field. So let's do higher education since we're talking about that. There are, of all the college presidents in Massachusetts, there are 69% uh, are men and 31% are women. And when you subtract those two, you get a 38% women's power gap. Um, when you look at life sciences, for instance, another sector we just did the quick numbers at, if you have 90% or so male CEOs and 5% women CEOs, you have a 90% power gap. And I think that that's really important to differentiate. When we talk about the women's power gap, what you're searching for and right now when you're looking at um, higher education is, is parity. You're looking for equality. Yes, yes. I mean, we felt it was really important I've been working on women's issues since the 90s. And it really feels to me like in most areas we've made glacial progress. And in some, we found that we had actually dropped. And so we need to look at if we just keep doing the same things and saying, okay, let's get one woman on a board or two women on a board, but we don't really talk about the goal of parity, we actually won't get to parity. You know, we, we have a little bit of progress and then it levels off. 
And what was most concerning to, to me and the t foundation when we started this research was that in higher ed, in our Massachusetts state universities, those are our public universities, we had seen a backslide. And that's what really caught my attention and why the foundation launched the Women's Power Gap Initiative. In 2008, there were five women who were presidents of our state universities. That's the nine state universities and UMass. And now, in 2018, there is zero out of 10. So we really wanted to understand what is that about. And for anyone who might not understand, because it seems simple, but um, why, is that, why is it important? Not just for young women um, and, and women, but men as well. Why is it important that we have parity at leadership levels in really any sector? Yeah, what's so important about diversity is that you know, in this day and age when women and people of color are the majority of our state's population, if you only have men um, from a certain background running our organizations, they just can't make the right decisions in terms of an aggregate, you know, collectively. If there's a table of 10 university presidents sitting around saying, you know, what do we, what do we need for Massachusetts state universities? And they're, they're not informed by people from different backgrounds. So it's really the most important thing that I think is the, we think about diversity of life experience. So you want all sorts of diversity, but you've got to start with gender diversity because we all know that women and men have different life experiences and bring different things to the table. So you said a backslide in the public university, colleges and universities is what prompted this. We're a very higher education rich state. What did you find in the report? Well, what we found is, um, and this was the first ever report to rank um, all of the universities. So it's really interesting and you get a lot of attention when you rank from number one to number 93 and how well they do in gender leadership at the very top. The very top means at the presidential level, have they ever had a female president? Do they have one now? Among senior leadership, so that's primarily deans, provost, and EVP, and then on their board. Do they have a, a female board chair? What percentage? And so what we found is that this is a sector which people assume is progressive. It, it We think of it as progressive. Most of these schools portray themselves as progressive, and there's so much talk on campus about diversity, but they're not role modeling it themselves at the highest levels. If you go one level down, there are a lot of women, what I like to say is running the trains. Women are great at running the trains, and everybody knows that. But then breaking through that glass ceiling it just isn't happening. So again, women should be about 50% of all of the college presidents, given that the pipeline is there. What we found was that women in aggregate among all 93 schools are 50% of the deans and the provosts. So the, the, the pool's there, but they're just not getting that top job. The other thing that we found, that, which was really startling, is that of the 17 largest universities in Massachusetts, so these are your Harvard, MIT, BU, UMass, Brandeis, Suffolk, not a single one. None of the 17 have a female board chair. So we found even a, a bigger disparity and a stronger glass ceiling, if you will, on becoming a board chair. And, you know, in my mind, I ask people, so, so think about that. What is, what's going on? There's a structural problem going on. And could it be that when boards are choosing the next board chair, they're thinking, well, we need a rainmaker, or they have what we call sort of an unconscious bias. 
And we just don't think of women and women's qualities in that way, and we don't attribute value to them. So Massachusetts, we, we like to think of ourselves as a progressive liberal state, culturally, politically. What's the reaction been like? I think it, it has it been difficult for leadership to accept these numbers? Yeah, I mean, the reaction universally has been, oh, that's not us. You must have missed something. You know, um, many schools have said, well, we're really good at the next level down if you look at our VP for this and that. But the truth is it's a relative study. So when you go one level down across the board, you're going to get the same result. Um, you know, so there's been a lot of pushback. But I take that as a great sign because it means that these institutions really care. Just recently, I met with one top institution with some some leading uh professionals at that institution and they sort of they said you know what could we do you know how could we how could we do better and I said you know the real the most important thing is is intentionality and and succession planning the board of directors of all of these organizations need to take this problem head-on and also include diversity um, including socioeconomic racial diversity and they need to take it head-on and say well we don't have this when you look around the table and there's you have an, a preponderance of bankers, let's say, most of whom are white, most of whom are male, you have to say our board needs to start. And how do we do succession planning so that we at some point have a female president? There were 32 schools of the 93 that have never had a female president. So there's been a lot of pushback um, and a lot of questions about, okay, we'd like to do better. How can we do better? And there's no easy answers. What's next for the ES Foundation yes, and the Women's Power Gap yeah. Initiative? Yeah, well, we will continue to do this survey every year because I really think that this sector can move. Just on colleges and universities. Every year we'll do the index. We won't do a full report, but every year because I think this sector is prime for change. You know, the students want change, the alumni want change, and the pipeline's there. So we're not going to give up on this sector. But we're also looking next at our state boards and commissions. So those should, whether it's the Board of Higher Education or the Massport Board, a lot of our quasi-publics, um, we're running the numbers. And preliminarily, we found that those boards, uh, women are not represented in the most powerful state boards and commissions. There are 700 total, but when you really look at the most powerful state boards and commissions, where are women and where are women chairs? We came, became alerted to the chair problem with the higher ed, so we're looking at that. After that, we're going to look at our business associations. Um, Massachusetts, we have a lot of business associations that really have the ear of the state house, which is so important to inform economic development policy and business policy. We're going to look at those. And then finally, we're looking at financial services. So we have a lot of work down the line and are always looking for partners, anyone who would like to work with us in any of those sectors and partner. And if people don't necessarily want to partner, but they want to get involved or learn more, what should they do? They should go to womenspowergap.org and um, sign up for a newsletter. Um, when you get to that website, there's a find your find your college. It's really fun. Um, you can just click on the website and you look up your school. I think it's a really great way 
to get introduced. We only did Massachusetts schools, so if you didn't graduate from a school, whether it's uh, undergrad or grad in Massachusetts, just pick one and see see how it works. It's a very robust tool that we have. So go to our website, sign up. We're do, we do lots of events. Uh, we're actually going to be at the State House today for an event. And um, come and join us. So you will have to come back and keep us surprised as, uh, as you go through the sectors. I would love to. Andrea, thank you for coming in today. Thanks for having me. And now, Two Minutes with Tom. Hi, Cayenne. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Away on air. Away on air. Two Minutes with Tom. Um, bit of a historic week here in the United States. The uh, 41st president passed away, George H.W. Bush. And um, I know you have some nice anecdotes and stories and reflections of sort of your experiences and time with him. First of all, uh, I, I think the whole week of activity since his, uh, his passing um, of last week has been just a, an extraordinary show of the way it used to be and the way it can be in the sense of civility and, and, and decorum and in behavior. politics. And uh, in politics, you know, in, in a very bi- a show of bipartisanship and love, very a very decent man. But a couple of stories. My my dad, when he was the speaker, George Bush was the was the vice president. And as tradition would have it, at the State of the Union address, while Ronald Reagan was giving the State of the Union address, he'd be at a, a most serious tone, and behind him would be my picture. Uh, my picture, my, my dad's sitting down, the picture of he next to George Bush, the vice president. And invariably, at a very high moment in time, when, when, when Ronald Reagan was giving a sincere and serious message, my father would lean over to the vice president and say something like, you know, he's full of baloney. It would make George Bush just very, uh, very nervous, <laughs> squirming, and, and try not to smile or laugh out loud. And of course, the world was watching it behind, always wondering, what it was the speaker was saying. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it was. <laughs> and that's what it was. All right. And he did it a couple of different times. Secrets out, folks. There's, there's another cute story. My son, who is an actor in New York, um, Tommy, who in, at an earlier age was always on stage, but he used to do these imitations of all the politicians of the time. He could do Mike Dukakis. He could do Ted Kennedy. He could do John Kerry. And he did Judge W. Bush, but he did the Dana Carvey uh, uh, imitation of George of H. W. Bush, and um, so my father, thinking it was cute, took him to the White House to meet the president, and he had Tommy perform <laughs> this 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 imitation of the president of the United States through the the eyes of Dana Carvey, and he'd go he'd go something like you know, uh, no, not at this time, wouldn't be prudent. And he would be moving the hands as George Bush would move the hands. And, oh, my God. I'm not sure the president saw it as funny, but he laughed. And he was very good, good-natured and good-humored about it. And my, my father carried that story to his own grave. He was, he was so proud of Tommy, but he loved the president and loved sharing that kind of moment with him. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or anywhere of your choosing, include our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week.